Okay, so I have here on the line Rachel Anstad, who hosts the Actually Autistic podcast in the States. Thanks for joining the Autism Podcast, Rachel. I'm so happy to be here, Chris. Okay, so um, I also have here James Gordon, of course. Hi, James. Hi there. Hi, James. Um, so today we're going to talk about the very important topic of older autistic adults and what it is that we can do to ensure that they live like hopefully all of us, uh, happy, healthy, um, high quality lives. You know, I mean, that's what it's all about. Uh, unfortunately, the statistics about this, this area and the statistics about that particular population uh, don't paint a pretty picture at all. Uh, but we'll get into that as the podcast goes on. But mm-hmm. I, I thought it would be good to have you on, Rachel, just to talk about your own experiences and views on this very, very important topic that often gets overlooked, actually. Uh, and um, also your sort of personal journey and uh, your personal autism story, if you don't mind uh, talking about that. So once again, thanks. Thanks for being on and uh, giving us your time and insight. Oh, my pleasure. So, yeah, if, if you don't mind just starting off telling us a little bit about your personal story when you were diagnosed when it was that you realized that you might be autistic and uh, perhaps the the impact that diagnosis had upon you perhaps something like that would be a great way just to get some context thank you yeah yeah I'd be happy to so I spend a fair amount of time on Facebook and at one point I was browsing through and I saw a friend's post and she posts kind of a lot of sort of encouraging things. She's a real nice lady. And the things that were on this post, it said things like, do you know a girl who loves horses and fantasy novels? Somebody who's kind of in their own world sometimes, but incredibly creative, maybe is real bright, but struggles in school and wants to make friends, but only seems to have maybe one or two at a time, if that. And I'm going through there going, hmm, check, 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 check. And I got to the bottom and I was expecting something like, well, you're awesome. But instead, what I saw there was the sentence, well, she may be autistic. And it just, it had this sort of, almost kind of like a little mini bomb kind of went off in my head not in a bad way but just like when something sort of illuminates a whole room and you go oh wait and then immediately I was like no 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 that can't be right because I don't do anything like they say autistic people do but I private messaged my friend because I was like what what does this mean were you joking and she said oh no no Um, this is real and that she knows many adult women who are autistic and also kind of gently said to me that she wouldn't be surprised to find out that I am too. And so... How how long ago was this? This was uh, last November. So it's 2019 now. That was November 1st of 2018. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't even been a year yet. And so your friend that you spoke to sort of suggested that she might be in agreement but hadn't said anything before. Did that surprise you or have you spoken about that since as to why perhaps you didn't say anything? Was it a sort of sensitive? Well, I I understand why she didn't say anything. Hmm. I, I'm a very blunt person and it, gosh, it turns out that that can be an autistic trait. And 
I will just blurt things out, but she is much more tactful <laughs> than I am. <laughs> or maybe she just had more practice because what I came to realize very quickly is that people get very offended when you suggest that they may be autistic. Mm. Even people who are open-minded and kind and everything else just because there's so much stigma attached to it and so much misunderstanding that when you suggest that somebody or somebody they love may be autistic you know what they're picturing is somebody with no empathy that's never going to get married Mm. you know all these horrible terrible things yeah Mm -hmm. and so we've learn kind of different ways to go about phrasing it and Mm. so this list that she put up was a way of having people like me be able to look at it and go oh oh, wait wait, what (laughs) right 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 it's really interesting it's interesting though that um well and, and also i suppose disappointing that you know this is another instance of negative impact potentially that autism stigma carries in that you know people you know, might otherwise be happy to sort of suggest an observation that they have about you, but hold back because they're worried about the negative implications that 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 observation might carry because of the stigma associated mm-hmm. with it. I, I mean, I've experienced that myself, to be honest with you, with my children, who mm-hmm. uh, two of whom are autistic. I have three boys. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, one thing that always sort of uh, annoys me when I think back, but then again, it's understandable given that stigma exists, you know, and people aren't born with the right knowledge. They're not born with, you know, the right approach. You know, it's down to to other sort of, I think, social policies and structures to really, you know, and cultural shifts to really, you know, stem this and remove this autism stigma. So I don't really blame them, but um, it does annoy me because... You know, I thinking back, I would have loved for my friends and family to have just been perhaps honest about it and said, you know, what I think, I think he might be autistic. You know, and and maybe mm-hmm. you should get it, maybe get get your son um, uh, seen by somebody in the know and get some support and and start that journey. You know, I mean, that shouldn't be it, because of the stigma, as you say. That that conversation is often, I think, prevented. You know, and it shouldn't be. You know, if if it, if it is mm-hmm. that that's his identity, that's his identity, and there's nothing wrong with that, isn't it? I mean, we should just explore and support our children or ourselves in whatever way oh, we can. Absolutely, absolutely. However, I think it's also just really fair to understand that autism, in terms of the way that we understand it now, just kind of didn't exist in the zeitgeist like even 20 years ago you know I was born in 1961 and I took you know I went all the way through college uh, I took education classes even like well into the 90s I took a bunch of uh, childhood education classes because I thought at that point that I was going to open a nursery school which I did not but anyway it helped me I think it helped <laughs> me be a better parent so that yeah. it certainly wasn't a waste of time but you know I took a an entire year or two worth of child development classes and I think autism was mentioned once in like a paragraph wow so that is telling there's just nothing there mm. for people to respond to. Um, and then it's not even necessarily, I feel like, a matter of stereotypes or education. But I, I was oblivious, completely oblivious. And it, 
was really the the biggest shock for me in terms of finding out that I'm autistic is finding out how bad it is to be labeled with that as a child or Mm -hmm. a young adult right now that it's just dreadful Mm -hmm. so that was painful to to learn about so you know only good can come from treating people with respect and kindness <laughs> seems absolutely absolutely you know yeah. and so I, I feel like every podcast every book every article that gets out there and says okay we really didn't understand how the heck autism worked before and now you know in the last 20 years we've got all this tremendous research all this tremendous feedback and we have a much better picture of the way it looks yeah and if we can get that image out there then we're going to be in good shape because there's so dang many of us absolutely yeah um i mean you're right in that things have improved and there's you know quite a bit more research than there used to be um however one area that badly lacks research is this area of um uh older autistic adults we really don't have anything we have minimal Mm -hmm. evidence as to how best to sort of tailor services or support their mental health uh, and reduce this terrible uh, mortality gap uh, that research Mm -hmm. does tell us is the case with autistic people. They die on average, according to uh, research, 16 years on average, younger than the general population, and up to 30 years on average, uh, younger than the general population if... Uh, they are autistic and have uh, an intellectual disability. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we, I, I, I'm of the view that, you know, if we're going to really help this situation, we definitely need more evidence and we need uh, perspective and insight from people, autistic community and, you know, get the evidence from them as to what works and what doesn't work. Because at the moment, you know, whatever the solutions we have, at least in the UK, <laughs> they're not working because we have this terrible... Uh, mortality gap uh so we okay need, but yeah. let's let's mm. talk about those numbers for a minute because you know here i am i'm i'm now 58 but i didn't know a year ago that i'm autistic so i would not have been included in those statistics along with millions and millions and millions of other people over the age of 35 so until we have a real picture of mm. how prevalent autism is in the population I'm not as horrified by those figures as mm. I would be if I thought they knew who was autistic and who wasn't. You know, there's no mm. there's no diagnosis to prove that you're an allistic person and for listeners who don't know that term that that simply means not autistic. So there is no diagnosis to prove that somebody is allistic and they're the people who are allowed to be diagnosed to find out if they're autistic is such a small subset of the population. For instance, in the United States, if I wanted to go get an official diagnosis, it would cost me thousands of dollars and I might have to travel and I might have to go through several psychiatrists before I found one that understood how autism presents in adult women. So we either have to just listen to people <laughs> when they say what they want, or we have to, like, you know, launch this huge kind of hunt 
to figure out to sort people into the holistic versus autistic camps. We can't just say, oh, that person we think looks autistic because too many autistics, they pass. They, you know, people go, oh, that's just quirky so-and-so. So you can't just tell people, oh, well, pick everybody you think might be autistic in your town. And so how do we do this? You know, do we test every single person? I, I don't think any of that is necessary. I'm right-handed. I know I'm right-handed. I can't handle fluorescent lights. I know this. Mm. I don't need, I shouldn't have to convince somebody that fluorescent lights make me really uncomfortable and can give me a migraine and make me really tired. I shouldn't have people saying, oh, you're imagining that. I should just have people say, oh, that is a common trait for people on the spectrum. It's possible that this person is on the spectrum, and I should just respect (laughs) the fact, Mm. you know, that that makes people uncomfortable. Mm. So I think if we just kind of have an approach where we listen to people and we respect what their concerns are and what makes them comfortable, then we automatically kind of sort people out into spaces where they're going to feel better if they happen to be autistic. Absolutely. I can agree more. I mean, it comes down to what you said earlier, isn't it? Just having that kind, respectful, compassionate approach. I mean, the the value of that is just immense, isn't it? Um, it saves so much money and time, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, that's not always the. It's often not the case, is it? Where, where, where? Because we have the, uh, we have all of these misconceptions about autism and these various stereotypes. Autism stigma is real. Discrimination is real. Mm-hmm. You know, and therefore people aren't uh, perhaps as compassionate and as kind and as respectful and inclusive and as accepting as as they could be. So I think we've got a long way to go um, on on that front. Uh, James, did you want to say something about... um... Um, Well, first of all, Rachel, um, I found myself very much in the same boat as you. I'm a bit younger. (laughs) Um, Uh I'm 45. But um, a couple of years ago now, um, it sort of sank in with me. Um, I'm a single father. Um, My son is now 11. And I've had him uh, parenting him on my own from when he was a baby. Um, uh-huh. And it was very obvious he had a lot of intellectual disabilities from right when he was a baby, you know, right from the start. So I've had sort of got him an early autism diagnosis from very young. Um, and all the way along, I've been parenting him. I've had comments from professionals that they've looked amazed when I've had insights into his behaviours of being what, how he's communicated mm-hmm. with me because he can't. Uh, speak or anything like that but we communicate fine between us and it's only just come home a few years ago the reason that I can understand him is because I'm autistic as well <laughs> um yay yeah so I am I get where you're coming from with that um what I wanted to say about the mortality issue as well um one of the things I think of as a parent is what will happen when I'm not around anymore to my son I think perhaps when um, these statistics are, are they, they may be harvested from a lot of different areas, but maybe um, one of the areas they come from is um, people that are in residential care, people mm-hmm. with a lot of intellectual disabilities and things like that. 
um, which my son might eventually be when I'm in my 80s or something like that. And I think of what he might go through if if he lost me because I'm the main person in his life. You know, I'm his life support, really. Um, and having to go through, you know, grieving, not understanding where that main person has gone from your life, you know, it must be, you know, unbearable. Um, and that might have something to do with um, why there's such a disparity in this, the group of people that they're, the population they're looking at, if they're looking mm-hmm. at people that have been in uh, this long-term uh, residential care, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why there's, as um parents are getting older they're not able to visit their children so often um or things like that might contribute to this um i think any any tragedy makes it difficult for any of us to face the next day we don't know you know it's we don't know what your son's life is going to be like you know 50 60 years from now but he, he may be surrounded by people he loves and and people he who love him so i i think that you know to some extent it's true in that the statistics that we have are statistics where people were obviously you know to somebody appeared to be autistic to a degree where there were communication issues um, you know perhaps intellectual challenges things like that autistic enough that somebody who got their medical training probably 20 years ago was able to see it. So I think that does skew things to some extent. It's also true that in the autistic population that there is a much higher percentage of trans and non-binary and, uh, you know, gender fluid and uh, perhaps, um, you know, sexually non-conforming to heterosexual stereotype individuals. We have a larger percentage of those in our population. And their lives are made, you know, immensely difficult just by trying to live in the bodies that they have. And so that can be a, a terrible and crushing factor there. It's also true that adult autistics have a terrible time getting employment and staying employed. And so a lot of us are very broke. There's a very high poverty rate, particularly among autistic women as we age. So I think when you look at all of those factors, the poverty, the likelihood of it being from a hospitalized population, the possibility that, you know, they don't, lots of us don't always feel like we fit exactly right in our skin or societal expectations. I think all of that makes a pretty high risk in terms of suicide and dying early. Mm-hmm. But again, to me, it, it's just a ridiculous, it's bad science. You know, it's a bad survey sample because yeah, yeah. we just have no idea. Uh, you know, I'm in these Facebook groups online and I do tend to gravitate to the ones which are women approximately my age. And every day there's, you know, three, four, five new members going, uh, hello, um, I think I belong here. I'm not exactly sure. And that's just Facebook. So what's happening 
everywhere else. I just think there's millions of us that are unrecognized. And so all of these statistics are going to be a little screwy. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. I think that is important to highlight. Of course, these statistics are going to have bias, aren't they, for sure? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as most studies do, and you've got to think critically about it, for sure. But I do think, um, uh, Rachel, that you, you know, some of the sort of social factors you highlighted are really mm-hmm. important and, and do have an impact on mental health and physical health and do oh, contribute yeah. to reducing lifespan. I mean, if you're experiencing discrimination, uh, and I think loneliness is a big one as well, mm. uh, and social exclusion, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that that can have a terrible impact on your feeling of self-worth and uh, sense of belonging. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, people uh, often, you know, come to our Facebook group because we run a Facebook group called the London Autism Group. And they, you know, we come on and we and we we see so much belonging. You know, so many people say, you know, this is fantastic. We really have a great sense of belonging here, but it always suggests to me that they haven't found that belonging in, in uh, you know, in in the sort of real social life, which is such a shame. There's a, so I think I think there's a big loneliness issue, a lot of unfortunate, preventable social exclusion, obviously a lot of bullying, and all of this can really, I think, uh, damage mental health. And and as you said, mm-hmm. Rachel, could unfortunately increase the risk of suicidal ideation. So there's all these preventable social factors that I think we can work on uh, because everybody deserves, you know, a life that is happy, you know, healthy, long and with dignity. And mm-hmm. it just I just feel at the moment that these that autistic people are at probably a more risk of not having that kind of life. Uh, than uh, perhaps the general population, uh, whether or not the statistics. Well, uh, I am not, I don't believe that at all. I see a lot of really miserable, holistic people in this world. And I see a lot of really happy, autistic people. I think that there there's something a little more nuanced there, really. And it may be because you are actually holistic and your idea of what happiness looks like is different than perhaps what an autistic's idea of happiness looks like. So I, for instance, I, I like people. Okay. Um, I, I'm very happily married. We've been together for 20 years. I have two kids I love very much. I have uh, many loving and patient friends. And yet I probably spend about 70% of my time alone. And that's what I like. I don't go out in the evenings. I, I would like to go out a little more than I could. That, that There's physical reasons for that. But I'm not heartbroken. <laughs> you know, I don't wish I could go to parties. I can handle maybe an hour or two in a location with a whole bunch of people. Mm. And when we're just allowed to have those spaces for ourselves, then we're really pretty happy. It really doesn't take very much. We need a a space that we can control from a sensory standpoint so that we have the right kind of light, so that we have the right kind of sound. But, you know, just imagine if everywhere you went, if everything was 50% brighter and louder than what you usually hear. And if you went into a restaurant and you're talking to a friend 
and you're kind of trying to focus in on their conversation. And it's a restaurant, so there's all kinds of things going on. There's Beach Boys on the radio. There's uh, a a couple having an argument that they're trying not to let anybody hear at another table. Uh, There's somebody else talking obnoxiously on their cell phone. Somebody else is just rattling dishes and things. And all of that is equally loud in your head so that every time your friend says something, you have to go, okay, no, that, that's not, that wasn't Chris talking. That wasn't James talking. That was a fork. Okay, no, all right, that sound, that, and your brain has to do all these like millions of refocusings for every like sound that your friend utters. Well, our brains are pretty amazing and they can do that, but it's exhausting. So we just, we get tired and when we're kids, we're, people say, oh, it's a kid. They love noise. They love sound. You know, they love light. Let's take them to like the circus. Let's take them to the mall. And at first we love it. It's super exciting. But then pretty quickly, sometimes it's half an hour. Sometimes it's two hours. Sometimes it's five minutes. There goes the meltdown. It's too much. It's just too much. It's too loud. You know, it's too bright. And we cry. If we're really little, we just scream because that's what little people do when they can't articulate things, right? Uh, We just have to get the heck out of there. And so then the sort of unfortunate cycle sets up where the kid gets known as being a problem, as being temperamental, they're just sensitive. It's just an environment that we are not neurologically wired for. It's Mm. an environment that is wired for people that are not as sensitive as we are. And so that sensitivity, and obviously, you all know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, I'm just some lady sitting in my basement you know, so experiencing <laughs> these things uh, at a later age than I think a lot of people would would get to learn about these things. But from what I've observed in my personal experience, what happened is that those sensory sensitivities were very high until puberty hit. And then there was this sort of blessed dampening down. Uh, this may have to do with how during adolescence, our cerebral cortex gets kind of a dumbed down. Uh, But whatever happened, it was possible for me to be in situations that I could not be in as a child. But when that wore off, when I was no longer an adolescent completely, and I want to say for me, that was probably about 24 before it finally, every last little bit was gone. uh, My sensitivities came roaring back. And then as I aged and as I hit menopause, the sensitivities just get more and more and more intense to the point that once I had turned 55, I, I, I can't really hang out in a bar. Uh, I can't drink alcohol anymore. I can't go to a loud concert. I can go to like, like I love Renaissance fairs, that kind of thing. I'm good for maybe an hour and a half. So this for me is one of the biggest considerations in terms of an aging autistic population Hmm. is that things like grocery shopping, travel, 
uh, on an airplane, um, even in a car, if it's long enough. A bus is almost out of the question. Incredibly difficult. And those are the areas where we really need understanding and patience. Uh, You know, private rooms, if we're in a care facility, a room without fluorescent lights, understanding that we have certain dietary needs that we're not picky because we're being difficult. It's just that literally our body is only capable of handling certain things. So it's just this constant kind of movement towards understanding and inclusion. I think pets are super important um, in terms of loneliness and these online communities are, you know, they're a total godsend that way. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I, and and everything you've said, I completely agree with with that one hundred percent. So that's and your insight is absolutely invaluable. Um, and that story of sort of personal sensory experience and journey and how that sort of interplays with, you know, uh, your life and the impact that has that's it's fascinating and crucial. Um, so thank you. Um, I'd like to ask uh, Rachel uh, if you do you think that things may have been different had you had a diagnosis earlier in your life or 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 not oh yeah Uh, there are so many situations I would have just walked away from because I kept trying to fit in Hmm. and you know what we like to say as autistics is that we have spiky profiles, meaning that we're incredibly good at some things and really bad at other things. And, you know, sometimes those things we're incredibly good at maybe don't seem real important to anybody else, but they, they can be important to us. Um, so part of the problem with that is that you can appear to be really good at one thing and then just be terrible at something else. And so people have expectations of you. And then when you don't come through, they think you're being deliberately rude or don't care about them or arrogant or something like that. Um, I didn't understand that my brain works very differently, sometimes in some very positive ways. I have what's called uh, hyperphantasia. I think that's what it's called. (laughs) It's close to that anyway. And I just, I have a very visual mind. I have the kind of mind where I can visualize anything. I can build a machine in my head. I can take it apart. I can make it run. I think like they describe like Tesla being able to do that. And this was just something I thought that everybody did. I really did not understand until my late 40s that this was something special that my brain could do and so I would have expectations of other people that they would be following along with me with my sort of thin verbal descriptions and they really had no idea what I was talking about and because people don't want no none of us want to look stupid right none of us want to go I don't know what you're talking about most of the time well I will but a lot of times we don't want to come across that way. And so I didn't know that nobody understood what the heck I was talking about. So I would have done a few things. I would have 
recognized that I I can be special in these ways, and these are valuable, and these are things I should charge for, and that there are certain groups of people that are just never going to accept me, and that's fine. You know, there's lots of people I don't like, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, some people are just inherently uncomfortable around anything that does not conform to their expectations. Like any yeah. deviations from expectations can make some people very nervous and uncomfortable. Well, that's me all the time. So instead of constantly squishing myself down smaller to try to be less obviously different, I would have just left mm. and gone in another direction. Um, I would think? have been a different kind of mom a little bit in that mm. I would have been more forgiving of myself in terms of like not wanting to go to PDA meetings and things like that. Hmm, interesting. What do you think it is about just human the human sort of need for others to fit in with their expectations because i think you've really hit on something important there isn't it i mean it's all about so much of these problems stem from you know the the pressure to to comply with social values and norms and and that creates such a such difficulty doesn't it and what is it about that do you think and uh, are there is there sort of do you have any view on that as to how we can push back against that perhaps you mean why holistic people behave that way? <laughs> it makes no sense to me, honestly. You know, from an autistic person's point of view, if I come into a circle of holistics and they're all using this very sort of pattern kind of rote robotic language, how are you today? I am fine. That's a nice dress you're wearing. Oh, this old thing. Oh, no, I don't. Yes, that that looks really nice. Oh, no, it's it's I look terrible today. I'm like, oh, come on, you people. What the heck is going on here? This lady obviously is dressed to the nines. She looks fantastic. She knows she looks great. Why is she pretending she doesn't look great? You, you know, why is this person saying they're fine when I can clearly see that they're wincing in pain and limping? Like, what the heck is going on with these people? Why are they doing this? this shadow play, this mime of social conventions. Hmm. And so, you know, if I walk in and somebody says, oh, Rachel, you know, your, your hair looks nice today. I said, oh, thank you very much. And that's, <laughs> I don't go, oh, no, it looks terrible because that's bullshit. You know, <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> and they yeah, just confirmed yeah. it for me. So, yeah, yeah. you know, these are the problems that I find. Um, mm. I, mm. I don't understand why when there's a bully in a workplace, and there's all, almost always one, I don't understand why holistic people will just go along with whatever the bully says, even if they know the bully is coming for them next. Mm. We had an episode on on the topic of bullying with uh, yeah. Emily Lovegrove, uh, and she was that was a really interesting mm. uh, uh, top, uh, conversation about the nuance the nuanced issue of bullying and how uh, society the way that society sort of generally thinks in a black and white way kind of translates into these issues of bullying. And if we look at the grey, then we'll really untangle mm. it and uh, get to the bottom of things a little bit better. If we just look at situations honestly. If we drop the 
whatever this addiction is to social pretense and this oddly competitive kind of one-ups personship where, I don't know, each person is like pretending to be less bothered by horrific things than the one next to them. I I don't understand Mm. it at all. It's fairly obvious to me walking into a situation, you know, when somebody's being a bully and when other people are just going along with it. And I don't, I don't know why everybody doesn't just say, you know, hey, Biff, knock it off. You know, it's mm. like, you know, why don't people just state the bleeding freaking obvious? I think it's it, to some degree a cultural thing as well. Um, you know, I'm I'm I have sort of Greek heritage as well as British. Mm. And uh, whenever I go to Cyprus or Greece, I, you know, I notice this. This pretense, uh, sort of, adi- how did you describe it? An addiction to social pretense. I love that. Um, that that is that addiction isn't quite as prevalent, at least from my uh, perception. That people tend to say, you know, oh, "You're <laughs> so they, right. Mm, you are so mm. right about that." Uh, I was born in Chicago and then spent some time living back east in New Jersey, which is, you know, practically New York in a lot of ways, and then lived in Southern California for a long time. And the difference was mm. phenomenal. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time around Jews and Italians growing up, and a very forthright group of people. Both both of those ethnic traditions have a lot of directness to them, and I do tend to get along better in groups of people who have that kind of more cultural mm. um, acceptance of directness and bluntness. Mm. Do you think, um, going back to the question of whether an earlier diagnosis would have helped you, and it certainly sounds like it would have, do you think that there are um, very many older autistic adults who haven't had the benefit of a diagnosis and perhaps therefore not um, had the sort of advantages that that would have had and perhaps that contributes to some, you know, some of the problems we were describing earlier, you know, if if you get early support, yeah. Oh, yes. I think there's millions of us because Mm. the fact that I just did not know who I was Mm. took up this huge chunk of my brain. Part of for me being autistic means that I can tend to be a little over analytical. And so I had all these theories as to why I wasn't fitting into groups, you know, from the outside, I shouldn't have any problem fitting in. You know, I should have at some point gotten a job in a big architectural firm or a set design place or something like that. You know, I I had a 3.9 grade point average in college and graduate school. I had two successful businesses. I was fortunate to be born white and female and uh, at a time when women are... Sl- sort of being more accepted into those kinds of roles. I mean, there's always the difficulty of being female in this world. Mm. Believe me, I understand that. But nonetheless, I feel like I was born into a fairly privileged, very educated, white, upper middle class family and community. And yet I've been practically dirt poor my whole life. And it's because I can't get a foothill in an holistically designed culture where you you start at this level of a corporation and you you slowly move through it 
I didn't understand that I had to be self-employed <laughs> if I was going to be employed. I did kind of figure out fairly early on, like really early on in my 20s, that I was going to be happier if I was self-employed just because I don't like the way a lot of companies are run. They're run with people thinking they can get away with things. And I'm just always very open and honest and want everything above board. And so I figured out fairly early that I wanted to work for myself. But what I did not figure out was that I had unique skills and abilities that made me more capable of doing that than a lot of other people. I didn't appreciate the strengths that I had, and I spent far too much time obsessing over why I didn't fit into this system that I couldn't make myself fit into. So I don't really feel like I needed any particular adaptations or accommodations or, or anything like that. I just needed to know who I was. And so just knowing who I am, and I want to be clear, I do not have an official diagnosis. I don't think they're necessary. I support people in getting them if they want them. I don't need one. Um, yeah. But just knowing who I am yeah. is so important to know who we are. And to find online all these other people who couldn't handle fluorescent lights, who will choose to be blunt and honest and lose a job if they think it will protect a coworker that's being attacked. Like, we will sacrifice our careers to help somebody else. And I just thought I was like a big, dumb softy. But no, I just have a really strong interior ethical framework that I adhere to. Yeah, Rachel, um, that's exactly, I think, uh, that encapsulates um, the title of your, your podcast, isn't it? The Actually Autistic. And mm-hmm. um, that, that term... I mean, is so important, isn't it? Perhaps you'd like to say a little bit about what that term means, you know? Sure. I used to be in radio and was really sad when I lost that job where I got to be on the air every day. That was super fun. So when podcasting came around, I was like, oh, great. This is my chance to do radio again. Well, then when I started learning that I'm autistic and all of that and participating in all these groups. And I realized, okay, this is something that I really want to talk about with a podcast. And I was spending a little bit of time on Twitter. I got to tell you people, Twitter terrifies me. It's, it's a terrible place as far as I'm concerned, but I was still looking for my community and there is a hashtag there called actually autistic and if you type in hashtag actually autistic all one word the way hashtags are then you can be part of a conversation with other people who are actually autistic where they will answer questions about whatever questions that you might have about autism now because twitter is twitter There's, you know, a lot of flame wars, a lot of silliness around the actually autistic uh, hashtag, people claiming they feel left out of the conversation because they can't contribute to it if they're not actually autistic. I'm like, yeah, you can talk. You can just not claim to be autistic when you're talking about how autistic people feel. That's all we're asking for. So uh, just 
it's Twitter, so I'm just telling you folks, beware. But you can still get a lot of helpful answers. You can also use the hashtag AskingAutistics. So I wanted to do a podcast where I was talking to people who are actually autistic about what it's like to be an adult autistic and realize that I could use this as an excuse to interview a bunch of people who I really admire and wanted to talk to very much. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what I did. So the Actually Autistic podcast, it's usually an interview. We've had uh, Sarah Hendricks, James McGrath, Samantha Kraft, all of these just amazing people. Um, Hilary Whelan, who are active in the autistic community. Sometimes it's not an autistic person, uh, in which case I call that a bonus episode. But uh, yeah, I started in March and... I think I just did like our 14th episode or something. It comes out every two weeks. Yeah, 14. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I actually have listened Mm -hmm. to a number of them and uh, they're absolutely inspiring. They're really fantastic. Uh, The interview of Shona Davison was uh, really, really uh, nice. Uh, Obviously, Shona is a big social media, media, Twitter person here in the UK. Oh, she's wonderful. She's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Hopefully we can have her on Mm -hmm. as well. Oh, and uh, mm. did you check out the interview with Dr. Wen? Yeah, Wen Lawson. Dr. Wen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's actually the only one that has a, a transcript yet. So that's an <laughs> that's an exciting oh, right. thing. Yeah. I I rely on volunteers to do my transcripts for me because I just can't do them. Yeah. But Dr. Wen is a specialist in aging and autism, and I highly recommend you get a hold of him. Yes, yeah, 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 you're right. You're absolutely right. I I know Cos, do you know Cos Michael? Uh, she's also a superb person to talk with no. about this topic area. If you haven't uh, had a chance, I'd, re- I'd recommend reaching out to her for your podcast. Because I sure she's, will. She's absolutely fantastic and has written a lot of papers about this issue and uh, is a big proponent of the need for more evidence with, with this, this whole issue. Um, but I listened to the Doctor, uh, the James McGrath one, uh, uh, that yeah. about the uh, rewriting of the autistic narrative in his book, and that was absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating. It was really interesting that he, you know, he's he sort of critically uh, analysed, you know, uh, the literature on uh, what the concept of autism is, and and you know how it's portrayed in in sort of social life, and all of the various uh, you know problems yeah. that those portrayals. Uh, it's a phenomenal yeah. book. It's called yeah. uh, Naming Autism. Mm. Naming Autism by Dr. James McGrath. I recommend it highly to everyone. Yeah, yeah. So your your podcast, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. What, what's, what are you trying to do from that? Is that you trying to, uh, you know, uh, improve understanding, acceptance? Uh, you know, what, what are the, what's the sort of vision of the, the podcast? Well, when I first really began to accept that I'm autistic. I went through this phase, which so far everybody I've talked to has gone through the same thing, where you go through this sort of life review, and every memory kind of pops up through this new lens. And I found this to be an incredibly exhausting process. I just couldn't get out of bed for months. Uh, Autistic burnout is another issue that really needs to be looked at that is not being discussed very much. But Mm. Um, anyway, so, and I was just starved for other narratives of people who had lived a life like 
I had. And so when I saw the Sarah Hendricks videos and when I read the list from Samantha Craft and, uh, you know, read stuff that Shona wrote and all this stuff, it helped me so much because I felt so alone. I, I was so confused. And just knowing that other women had experienced the same thing that I had meant all the world to me. And I picture all these millions of women out there, you know, over the age of 40, no idea why they can't fit in, no idea why they can't hold a job, no idea why they can't stand wearing a bra or can't sit under a fluorescent light or just can't do all these other things that all these other people seem to so effortlessly be able to do to find out that there's lots of us and to hear our voices and to hear that over and over again you are okay you are all right you are operating as designed and you deserve a space on this planet and we welcome you we want you to be here we're happy that you're here Mm -hmm. you are not alone and so that's the message of every podcast I do. You're not alone. You're not making it up. And it's not your fault. And the wonderful thing about a podcast is that it's going to be there for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. So somebody 30 years from now, undergoing this process might be able to come across my podcast and still hear me saying, that you're not alone. So how awesome is that? How can I not do that? How can I not have that opportunity where I spend an hour in my basement and somebody 30 years from now might get a little bit of comfort from what I said? There's just nothing more powerful. There's nothing more magical. And what you two are doing is wonderful. You know, the the more voices we get out there, the better... It totally is. And you two, sounds like you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you very so much. Thank, thank you, you for that. Yeah. Thank you. I've got one last question, if you don't mind. What advice uh, would you would you give? Uh, I know you've already given lots of advice, uh, crucially, you know, not to feel alone, you know, to, uh, you know, seek out support, etc. Oh, I'm full but... of advice. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what advice... <laughs> What advice would you give to older people who think they may be autistic and and are listening to this, you know, perhaps exploring their identity, you know, and and really uh, aren't sure as to what to do? Uh, What, you know, what advice might you give to those listeners in particular? Well, there's so many different avenues to explore this. So I would just suggest that you go down whatever avenues are comfortable for you. Stay away from any organization or person that thinks of autism as something to be cured. It has nothing to do with being cured. Being autistic is part of our neurological wiring. It's just part of who we are. And the goal is to make the most of who we are, just like anybody else. We look at our strengths, we look at our weaknesses. I'm five foot four inches. I'm never going to be a basketball player. It it doesn't matter. 
you know, <laughs> how holistic I could be. I'm never going to be a basketball player, and that's okay. I'm never going to be a mathematician, and that's okay. So just pick the things that we're good at, follow those, and, you know, don't be afraid to try new things. Uh, look for local groups. Look for groups on Facebook. There are groups specifically tailored towards older autistic people again if you end up in a group with a bunch of people arguing about the right words to use or whether or not somebody is really autistic because they didn't get a note from their doctor blah 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 find another group those are not your people <laughs> just keep looking <laughs> looking and we're out here and come listen to my podcast come join my group on facebook the actually autistic podcast facebook group and just relax you know just be yourself uh, pick up that paintbrush pick up that guitar pick up that wrench you know do that thing that you love doing and enjoy yourself and find younger autistic people to mentor because the younger generations are so beat upon are so punished have been through such horrible horrible behaviorist therapies they're going to need our help and if you can look at a younger autistic person and don't criticize them for using social media or playing video games or whatever it is it just just be accepting of who they are then we can help out this next generation and we're going to need them to take care of us so it's a good investment for all of us well i wish everybody had your outlook to be <laughs> honest with you <laughs> that's i mean if if they did i think we'd be in a much happier healthier you know uh, high quality life and world yeah, 100%, so think, yeah, yeah i mean i really love your compassionate kind accepting inclusive approach rachel it's so important and again thanks Thanks so much for everything that you do and um, and also for coming on the podcast. James, did you uh, have my pleasure. anything else to add or say? Well, I'd just like to say thank you, Rachel. That was fantastic. And uh, carry on the really, really good work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. You too. All right. Thanks for being actually autistic, James. <laughs> <laughs> right back at you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye, fellas. Thanks very much. Take care, Rachel. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.